Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. We've come to Joshua chapter 10. Joshua 10 and 11 are really the majority of the conquest of the land of Canaan. As we're going to see in Joshua 10, everything that's occurred before now has been sovereignly orchestrated by the Lord to lead to this exact moment so that Uh, the majority of the southern arena in Canaan will be taken very, very rapidly. It's very amazing how the Lord uses all of these events, uh, Jericho, I, and the Gibeonites, in order to accomplish this in a very short amount of time. So we're going to read Joshua chapter 10, verses 1 through 11 today. Now it came about when... Adoni Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had captured Ai and had utterly destroyed it, just as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king, that the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were within their land, that he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than I, and all its men were mighty. Therefore Adonizedek of Jerusalem sent word to Hoam the king of Hebron, and Piram the king of Jarmut, and to Japhia king of Lachish, and to Deber king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me. Let us attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the sons of Israel. So the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmut, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered together and went up, they with all their armies, and camped by Gibeon and fought against it. Then the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For the kings of the Amorites that live in the hill country have assembled against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the valiant warriors. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal. And the Lord confounded them before Israel, and he slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, and pursued them by way of the ascent of Bet-Horon, and struck them as far as Ezekah and Machedah. And it came about as they fled from before Israel while they were at the descent of Bet-Horon, the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Ezekiah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than those who the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Now, what's happening here in the first several verses, verses 1 through 5, is we hear about a king, the king of Jerusalem, Adoni Zedek, who hears all of what's going on uh, in the central arena where Joshua has 
captured Ai, put to death its king, just the same way that he has done to Jericho and its king. And this is important because Jericho is an important city. The city of Ai is uh, not an insignificant city, but smaller. But then also he talks about how the inhabitants of Gibeon have made peace with Israel. And that's a warning flag for this king in Jerusalem because Gibeon is said here to be a great city, like one of the royal cities, bigger than I, greater than I, and its men were mighty warriors. And if the people of Gibeon are trembling before Joshua and the people of Israel, then they are a severe threat. And so in verses three through five, what Adoni Zedek is going to do is to send word to the kings of these cities in his region. Now, back in this time, kings did not operate uh, regionally most of the time. Uh, typically, an individual city functioned as a city-state. It had its own government, had its own king. So the king was the ruler of one particular city, and these cities had large fortified walls. You can kind of think of like medieval times with castles, large walls in these castles and a moat surrounding them and one gateway to get into the uh, uh, walled-in area of the castle. Well, the city was similar to something like that, a little bit larger than a castle would have been during this time, and a king, the ruler of these individual cities. And so we've got the king of Jerusalem, Adoni Zedek here, reaching out to four other kings, the king of Hebron, Jarmut, Lachish, and Eglon. These are all in the southern area of the land of Canaan in what would come to be known as the hill country of Judah. These kings are talked about as the kings of the Amorites or the kings who are living in the hill country. Jerusalem in particular is a very mighty city, an important and powerful city. We will find out as we continue on, Jerusalem was a city that was never conquered during the conquest of Canaan. Uh, its mighty men and its people were defeated. Its king will be defeated here. But the city itself is never taken over all the way down until the time of David, several hundred years later. Because of its location high up in the mountains, because of its strong fortifications, it was very difficult to conquer. So these kings and these cities are important rulers of big cities, large cities with large walls. In fact, if we were to go back to Numbers 13 and 14, the area that the spies went to from Kedesh Barnea when Moses sent out the spies was to this southern territory. They would have gone past several of these cities and saw just how large they were, just how strongly fortified they were, and even though it's not mentioned in the text here, that there are massive human beings, giants, that are living in these territories. So the king of, of Jerusalem sends word to all these different kings in these different cities, and he says, uh, come up to me and help me. Let us attack Gibeon, 
for it has made peace with Joshua and the sons of Israel. So their goal is to attack Gibeon because they don't want Gibeon participating in the battles with Israel. Gibeon has a lot of mighty men, mighty warriors, and they're thinking if they can pick off Gibeon first, uh, that Israel... Uh, and then at least they can deal with one nation rather than two kingdoms coming together and assaulting all of the people in the land of Canaan collectively. In verse 6, we find that the men of Gibeon, once they are attacked by this coalition of southern armies, they send word to Joshua, who is back with his people at the camp at Gilgal. Now, remember, Gilgal is down toward the Dead Sea near the city of Jericho, closer to the Jordan River. And the word that they send is, help us, come up quickly, don't abandon us. You've made that covenant with us. You need to protect us. You need to help us. Well, I'm sure Joshua was faced with something of a moral and ethical dilemma here because his people were very upset with the people of Gibeon for fooling them and forcing them into this covenant. This would have been an easy way for Joshua just to sort of take a step back and say, well, yes, we'll go, uh, you know, but it's going to take us a while to get there. And maybe by the time we get there, you know, the, the five armies are really going to wipe out the majority of Gibeon. Or he could have very well said, yeah, you know what, we're not going to go. Joshua shows his integrity here again by acting faithfully to the covenant that he had made with Gibeon. So in verse 7, Joshua goes up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the valiant warriors. Now, I'm sure Joshua is thinking, this is not the way I thought that the conquest was going to go. We wanted to go to each of these cities one at a time, like we did to Jericho and I. The plan is to go city by city and conquer people by people, not deal with five major armies all at one time. That is not the way this was supposed to go. Nevertheless, he goes up with his group to defend Gibeon. And in verse 8, the Lord says to Joshua, and we have seen so consistently before each of the battles and each of the conquests, the Lord has encouraged Joshua in not being afraid. And he does the same thing here. He says in verse 8, do not fear them. For I have given them into your hands. This is, again, the prophetic perfect. He's already given them into the hands of Joshua and the Israelites. He goes on further and says, Not one of them shall stand before you. So verse 9, Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal. In other words, they didn't just mosey on up into the hills to Gibeon. They marched all through the night and hustled to get over from Gilgal to Gibeon and to defend the Gibeonites and fight against this five ruler coalition. And the Lord confounded them in verse 10 before Israel. He slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and pursued them by the way of the ascent of Bet Horon and struck them as far as Azekah and Makedah. Now, 
What's incredible about verse 10 here is that although the author doesn't spend a lot of time on the details of this battle, this would have been a huge war. Five different cities and their people of war coming together. I mean, you've got at least a group five times greater than the group of the people of Israel who were going out to meet them and fight against them. Now, they would have had the Gibeonites to fight with them, but they're still outnumbered. And they are able to rout the armies of the southern Amorite kings and send them fleeing and uh, pursuing after them. Notice who the author gives the credit to for the battle. Doesn't give it to Joshua, doesn't give it to the mighty men of Israel or even to the people of Israel. In verse 10, he starts off by saying, the Lord confounded them before Israel. The author's presentation is that it is the Lord who is going to war. The Lord is fighting against the Amorites, the five kings. And the Lord is the one that continues to pursue them. In verse 11, it came about as they fled from before Israel while they were at the descent of Bet Horon, that the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Ezekiel and they died. And notice this little detail at the end of verse 11. There were more who died from the hailstones than those who died from the sons of Israel killed with the sword, than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Who is doing the fighting here? Well, I think it's clear that the Lord is the one who is fighting this battle on behalf of Israel. He's the one that causes confusion and confounds them, these five armies together. He's the one that pursues them by throwing down large hailstones from heaven. By the way, in Canaanite mythology, Baal or Baal is the god of uh, the storm and the weather. And so, uh, using hailstones from heaven to smash these Canaanites as, as they're fleeing from the people of Israel, they would have known very clearly that it was not simply Israel that was attacking them, but the God of Israel who was attacking them. And now their God is great. Uh, the, the God of Israel is even greater than Baal, their God. And so we have not just the element of Israel at war with Canaan, but the Lord God at war with Canaan also. We'll pick up in verse 12 next time. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu partner.